At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Hall of Shame is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. When it comes to scoring great hires for your business, you may be up against some obstacles like lots of applicants but difficulty finding the right ones for your job or finding time to hire while running your business, plus trying to ensure workplace safety. That's why you need ZipRecruiter on your team. No matter the industry, healthcare to manufacturing to business services, ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. And now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com shame. First, when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology hustles for you to find people with the right experience for your job and invites them to apply. In fact, check out this stat. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Ooh, That's pretty good. Yeah. So add ZipRecruiter to your roster to help win the hiring game. To try ZipRecruiter for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash shame. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-H-A-M-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash shame. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, everybody. I'm Rachel Bonetta. And I'm Rechna Fruitbaum. And this is Hall of Shame. Hi, Rachel. Hey, dude. What's going on? How are you? Um, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, a little overwhelmed by all the sports right I mean, now. they are. Oh! I was like between the U.S. Open and the football and the basketball this weekend. What a weekend. Felt great. It's absolutely crazy. I've gotten my soul crushed many a times over the past. Sure. By the time this is going to come out, uh, our souls probably will have been crushed <laughs> quite a few times. Yeah. <laughs> go Browns. Go Browns, go. Go. But it was fun. It was a fun weekend. It's really nice. I mean, never have we ever had what we have right now. We have the NBA playoffs. Yeah. We have football. We have tennis. We have golf. We have fucking literally baseball. Every sport in the world is happening right now. It's yeah. weird. But great. But great. We love. Uh, speaking of sports, the topic of our podcast, <laughs> I have a question for you. Yeah. Was that the greatest transition that was line of all time? Your, Just like wow. fucking chill. A poet. Rachel, do you have a favorite sports movie that's not Joanna Man? Oh shit. That's not Joanna Man. Ooh. <laughs> I know that's um, tough for you. We know listen, we've already talked about this. If you if you hadn't listened to our podcast before, I understand that Joanna Man is problematic and I do not like it anymore. It was my number one movie sure. when I was a kid. I loved Like Mike. Oh, great. Love that. Like Mike is way up there as well. Um, I used to want to play basketball so bad and I just was not gifted in that Ugh. area. So like Mike, you know, I was just like, oh my God, it could happen to me. I could, I could be like struck by lightning and, and become like Michael Jordan. Look, Sweet. it still could. Totally. I don't know how lightning works, but well, you never know. Okay. In the year of our Lord 2020, <laughs> anything's possible, Fucking you know. Anything's possible. <laughs> <sighs> so one of my very faves Mm-hmm. is Field of Dreams. It just Ooh. like has it all, you know, like baseball, feelings, history, yeah. Costner. Corn. It's got it all. <laughs> and today, milady, 
Mm. I'm going to tell you about the infamous 1919 World Series that is at the center of that classic film. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Get ready. Let's go back in time. All right, so the 1919 World Series took place between the White Sox of Chicago and the Reds of Cincinnati, which is like the one thing I did know. But there were all these details of the story I didn't really understand, and it was very fun to learn about them. Turns out an excellent but fictional movie with Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones isn't going to give you all the accurate deets. Okay. I mean, truly not its job to, so that's on me. (laughs) Anyway, I have a lot of thinking to do about where I get my information, but that's not why we're here. No. The 1919 White Sox were a veteran team who won the World Series in 1917, two years earlier. And the only reason they weren't that good in 1918 is because several key players from that team were deployed for service in World War I. But once everyone was back, they crushed again. And in that 1919 season, they were the best team in the American League and probably in all of baseball. Something unusual about the World Series that year was that it was going to be a best of nine instead of the more common best of seven. And that was done to boost revenue and increase the sports popularity. So your girl loves sports, loves, we know this, could watch all day. You could get me to watch almost any sport at any time, but best of nine is Uh too much. Way too much. It's like misguided. Just baseball, period. It has the most games out of any sport. It's a lot. The innings take forever. I Listen, your girl loves to hang out, drink some beers, eat some Dodger dogs. But game nine, uh-uh, not, not going to be there. That's too many games. Yeah. That was sort of going to be the World Series that year, though. But before we get into that way too long series, let me tell you a little bit about America at this time. Ooh. Oh. So, let's go way back. So 1919 was a tough year in American history, and specifically for Chicago. On January 16th, 1919, so right away to open the year, the 18th Amendment was ratified and established the prohibition of alcohol through all 50 states. Bummer. Rough. The ban was designed to curb crime, improve widespread poverty, and generally address the societal issues that were seen as plaguing major cities. But much like any time I've deprived myself of alcohol, Things went terribly wrong. You just want it more. Yeah, exactly. Prohibition, in fact, led to an increase in crime in cities like L.A., New York, and Chicago. Chicago already had an unusually high mob presence. The city was, like, in it. Like, we get it. We know Al Capone. There was also this overlord of the underworld, Big Jim, who, fun fact, was allegedly murdered by Al Capone for refusing to enter into the bootlegging business. But that's, you know... A different podcast than ours. We, we should totally cover it, though, even though it has nothing to do with sports. <laughs> Love it. Also in 1919, in addition to Prohibition, the United States was still deep in the Jim Crow era. And not just in the South. A few months before the World Series, there was a full-blown week-long race riot in Chicago, incited by the whites against black Americans that involved arson, looting, and murder. Chicago was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Sounds like they needed a drink. So I'm sure things weren't perfect in Cincinnati either. But comparatively, our Reds were a little more biz as usual. They're just like eating up that skyline chili and riding roller coasters at King's Island. by the way, that looks gnarly. (laughs) I've never tried, but have you had it? It's good. It's just, what is it, chili just soaked in cheese? It's delicious. Sure. Maybe not the next day. I love love this judgment coming from the girl who ate hot dogs in Russia. Like, 
Okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, you win this one. <laughs> you win this one. I have no rebuttal. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know much about Cincinnati. I looked it up. Kings Island didn't actually open until 1972, so they probably weren't riding roller coasters there, but there you go. Those are the two things I happen to know. Anyway, the point is, going into the 1919 World Series in Chicago in particular, shit was a-brewing, and not just in the city, but also on the team. So at the time, the Chicago White Sox owner was a guy named Charles Comiskey, who was an ex-MLB player himself, but most known for being insanely stingy. Just a side note, Comiskey Park, which was like their famous park, was named after him. Anyway. But he wasn't like stingy in the like, I'm going to start to cook a little more at home to save some cash frugal. He was like, I'm going to save on expenses by reducing the number of times my players' uniforms are laundered miserly. No, 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 no. Hence, those white socks came to be known as the black socks. Ew. Their socks were literally dirty. Have you ever played in an unwashed uni, like, for real, before, from, like, you know, it's happened, right, in college when I was, like, <laughs> I mean, probably, and it was just because I was Disgusting. playing sports all the time, especially, like, hockey equipment. Hockey equipment gets nasty. Ugh, it stinks. Well, this owner was making his players do it on the regs. Wow, that's trash. Another example of Comiskey's stinginess Starting pitcher of the White Sox, Eddie Seacott, had a $10,000 signing bonus if he won 30 games in a season, which is a really awesome thing to do. That's nice. But in 1917, as Seacott was approaching that amazing milestone, Comiskey had him benched so he didn't have to pay him his bonus. Wow, what a piece of poop. I mean, This guy is cheap as fuck. Total. This a-hole. Meanwhile, was also like, I'm going to build a stadium and name it after myself. <laughs> Don't so, they always do that bullshit, totally. though? Totally. Comiskey Park was called the Baseball Palace of the World. I'm like, Palace of Stinky Uniforms and Unpaid Bonuses? Yeah, you dirtbags. So though these White Sox were baseball's best unit, there was a fair degree of division within the team. Eddie Collins... One of the players said, I thought you couldn't win without teamwork until I joined the White Sox, yet somehow we won 100 games and the pennant. There were basically two factions of players. Their only shared thing was that they both hated the owner, obviously, because he sucked. But they also hated each other. Everyone's just pissed because, like, no one's making any money. Everyone stinks like shit. (laughs) Everyone's having to sit together in the locker and they're like, this fucking sucks. But we won the World Series, so here we are. So the first faction of this team were what I like to think of as the teacher's pets, led by Captain Eddie Collins and included Ray Schalk, Shano Collins, Dickie Kerr, Red Farbo, and Nemo Liebold, Snoozefest, in wow. other words. The second group were generally less educated, which meant they were also less paid, oh. classism as ever, led by first baseman Chick Gandal. Remember that? Because he plays a big part in the story. Okay. And included Eddie Seacott, who we just talked about, Oscar Happy Felsch, Fred McMullen, Charles Swede Riesberg, a real looker based on the grainy oh. photo I saw. Incidentally. Okay. Do I Google? George Buck Weaver, Claude oh. Lefty Williams, who was a pitcher with a reputation for control, and Shoeless Joe Jackson, who was oh. featured in Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. In my humble assessment, the second group were clearly more likable and fun. I mean, they've definitely got better names. Holy Girl, shit. Right? By the way, Shoeless Joe's is a chain of really awful restaurants in Toronto. I think maybe Canada, period, but they're all over the place. Interesting. I worked at one once and I got fired. So I wonder what the connection shitty. is to Shoeless Joe Jackson. Mm, there's got to be something there, right? Yeah. Well, outside of their cooler nicknames, the point of that outside of their 
fucking awesome nicknames is that most of the guys in the second faction were underpaid and underappreciated. So while their play and hard work was raking in big bucks for the league and specifically for this a-hole owner, he wouldn't even get their uniforms washed. It was like, you know, not okay. Just not respectful. Side note, the league was sort of set up to fuck the players up across the board when it came to getting paid. They had this thing called a reserve clause where any player who refused to accept a contract was prohibited from playing baseball on any other professional team. So basically meant no bidding wars. So that kept player salaries unfairly low. But this White Sox team in particular was real bad because Comiskey was their cheap ass owner. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. I mean, this is, well, some of those guys, like Shoeless Joe was huge, but it's interesting to see leagues versus players back then versus leagues versus players now. Like a LeBron controls the NBA, you know? Yeah, the power of the players has shifted a lot. Absolutely. So not back then. And Chick Gandal, who I said above, was in that second group, the Sox first baseman, sees all the inequity and is like, it's time I did something about this. Oh. So this guy was apparently known as a professional malcontent, in quotes. That was like the word for him. He was a little bit of a troublemaker and described himself as a wild and rough guy. If you look at a picture of him, he just looks straight up mean. Straight up mean? Yeah. He's, like, harsh, you know? He's got, like, a resting bitch face. He's just, like, one of those guys who gets in trouble a lot. Mm. Sort of likes to make things difficult for himself. That's probably what people say when they look at pictures of us, too. They're like, those girls look mean. I feel like I look sharp in my Felix Grey glasses, blue light glasses, which I'm loving. Little four eyes over here. Yeah. cute. Little cutie? Little cutie. (laughs) Anyway... Our guy, Chick Gandal, was one of those people, one of those guys who loves to make life difficult for himself. And he didn't disappoint this year in 1919 when he decided to conspire to fix the World Series and make some of that sweet cash he felt the players were owed. Ooh. Mm. See, this is interesting because I knew about this story somewhat. Right. But this, okay. Yeah. I see where you're going with this. Continue. (laughs) So because I'm a very responsible journalist, Mm -hmm. is that? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I would like to preface this by saying there are conflicting accounts about the details of this story. So I'm just going to walk you through what is our best understanding of how. Yeah, there's always conflicting stories when it comes to game fixing. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So the White Sox make it to the World Series and about a week before the start of the series, Gandal is in Boston and he reaches out to an old acquaintance and sports gambler named Sport Sullivan. And he asked him to come by his hotel room. I'm sorry. His first name is Sport? I'm guessing that's a nickname. Huh. That'd be cool if it was. <laughs> it's in quotes. So Would you ever name, I mean, any of your kids just Sport? <laughs> just Sport or Sports? I mean, it's like that. It's like the uh, Crimson Tide guy. <laughs> oh, oh R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah. So he invites Sport Sullivan to come by his room. Later, Gandal will say Sullivan reached out to him, but either way, these two meet up and hatch a plan. Because again, Mm. you know, (laughs) nobody's getting their story straight. So while today it is a huge no for players to gamble on their games, back in 1919, it was fairly common for like the players and the gamblers to mix freely. So, like, players would kind of regularly place bets on games, and after a game, they would, like, chill with these gambler guys. But for the most part, the gamblers and bets were small time. It's not like they were conspiring to fix games Mm -hmm. until now. 
Well, I feel like the rule of like sports gambling is so intense and there are so many rules yeah. and like, you know, most of the country it's illegal. But not back then. Well, it's because of this yeah, story. Totally. <laughs> That's how it all started. So Gandal tells Sullivan that he could put the series in the bag, in quotes, for $80,000. In other words, Gandal was offering to throw the World Series in exchange for money, just to walk you through it. Of course, a single player can't fix a series on his own. So Gandal's got to get a few players in cahoots. Cahoots, what an all-time great word. <laughs> Love that word. So now, imagine your favorite Let's Get the Gang Together montage. Mine is from McGruber with Major League in a close, close second. Amazing. <laughs> After his meeting with Sullivan, Gandal recruits outfielder Oscar Happy Flesh, third baseman Buck Weaver, shortstop Swede Reisberg, <laughs> utility infielder Fred McMullen, and starting pitchers Claude Lefty Williams and Eddie Seacott. All these guys from the number two squad. And to round out this ragtag team of conspirators, he also got the team's best hitter and best player, Shoeless Joe Jackson. Yes. And then cut to being introduced to the equipment manager and his name's just Sports. Yeah. Again, I should say, who was involved has been the subject of a lot of dispute, particularly the Shoeless Joe part of it. I need to say that. That said. We're legally obligated. Yeah. If we're going to believe the story, you're probably wondering how all these players so easily agree to participate. Well, I'm here to tell you, Rachel, the answer to that is unsatisfying and unclear. Oh. <laughs> we know that Seacott, at the time, had been having money troubles and needed the cash. And initially, McMillan, one of the players, threatened to rat on them if they didn't include him. So, like, there was just a lot going on. Not all of them were immediately on board. Some hesitated initially. Presumably, I think, I would guess, their shared hatred for Comiskey, the owner, probably helped them all get on board. I mean, I would hope so. I would hope that that's the reason that they did it. That's right. the reason I would do it. <laughs> They're like, we are not getting paid nearly enough. Also, my fucking uniform stinks. <laughs> <laughs> no one <laughs> will like come near me. A toilet. Yeah. <laughs> so on September 21st, 1919, a little bit before the World Series, they all meet to talk out the plan. So according to Gandal, quote, they were all interested and thought we should reconnoiter. What a great word. What? Reconnoiter? <laughs> they talked differently back then, Rachel. Apparently so. <laughs> well, they all thought we, we should reconnoiter to see if the dough would really be put on the line. Weaver suggested we get paid in advance. Then if things got too hot, we could double cross the gambler, keep the cash, and take the big end of the series by beating the Reds. I think it's hilarious that he said reconnoiter and then dough. Like I know. Two, two words away from each other. Okay, go on. He said, we agreed this was a hell of a brainy plan. And I feel like the second you're self-defining a plan you've made as brainy, that's a sign. It's probably not. Yeah, you're out. Is you're done. <laughs> anyway... Then things get a little crazy, as if they're not already a little crazy. For an institution that's called organized crime, these dudes were very disorganized. <laughs> <laughs> so talk of the fix spread amongst other gamblers who wanted in on the action. At nice. one point, Eddie Seacott was approached by two totally different gamblers, Sleepy Bill Burns and Billy Mayharg, who upped the ante and offered them 100000 up front <gasps> to throw the game. Shit. So Confusing. literally everybody knows it's the talk of the town. It's the talk of the gambling world. It. Great. Like, yes, exactly. At this point within the gambling community, it's like kind of an open secret, you know? Yeah. It's all very confusing. I'm going to let you know as I walk you through this. Like, it okay. took us a minute. 
So in terms of money, it's a little unclear how it all got dispersed. As far as I can understand, the players had two offers on the table. The original offer from Sullivan for $80,000 to fix the series. And then this follow-up offer for $100,000 from Burns and Mayharg. And both sets of gamblers, to confuse it just a little bit more, were controlled by one head crime boss, a guy named Arnold Rothstein. But girl, as ever, neither of these quite panned out as planned. So in the end, Sullivan, the first offer gambler, was given $40,000 by the head crime boss to be distributed evenly among the players, and then another $40,000 to be held in a safe and doled out after the fix. He instead pocketed $30,000 of that and bet on the Reds himself and then distributed what amounted to $10,000 to the involved players. So shady. But what else would we expect? <laughs> it's a shady business. Well, I mean, I think it's your fault that you trusted somebody like this in the first place. Yeah. But okay. Exactly. So the other two gamblers who had offered $100,000 then came back with a different deal offering to pay the players 20000 for each game they lose. So it's very confusing. But basically, the players seem to have moved forward simultaneously with both offers. Oh. But both were being financed by this one guy, crime boss Rothstein. Okay, great. This is going to be a foster <laughs> Their brainy plan. So later, there was like a bunch of conflicting testimony, and some players are like, don't even go there. I only agree to throw two of the nine games. So I'm like <laughs> basically scot-free, you know? But the bigger point is, there were all these conflicting narratives. The truth may never be known. What we do know is money was exchanged and the fix was on. Got it. Okay, so now everyone knows the plan, and the 1919 World Series is about to start. But before I tell you what went down, some ads! Hall of Shame is brought to you by Miller High Life. Miller High Life brings pride to the simple things in life. Miller High Life is an unpretentious quality beer with refreshing champagne-like tiny bubbles in an iconic glass bottle. Big or small, there are moments within every day worth celebrating. Rechna. Yeah. I have been going outside every day. Good for you. And I think that that's something... Worth celebrating, right? Agreed. I've been putting on pants. I've been putting on a brassiere. Look, putting on a bra during the pandemic is like Girl, definitely celebrate. I don't think people realize how Pop open that beer. annoying bras are. I mean. It's an achievement to wear one every day. Okay. Yeah. Celebrate with the high life. Pop that brew. Miller High Life has been faithfully brewed the same way since its start on New Year's Eve in 1903. The founder believed that everyone should enjoy the good life, which is why he created the Champagne of Beers, which High Life has been famously known as for over 100 years. And we love... Love. Anything with a fancy bottle that's called the Champagne of Beers. Thank you very much. I'll take it. And we love anything that's been around for over 100 years. I feel like we're really drawn into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Miller High Life, the Champagne of Beers, a quality beer within everyone's reach. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hall of Shame is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. What if a quarterback completed four out of five of his passes? I mean, if Baker Mayfield did this, we would perhaps <laughs> poop our pants. 
Yeah. I Has mean, he even if he lost, just doing that would be cool. Oh, we'd we feel like a victory. Celebrate. Yeah. Or how about a point guard hitting four out of five shots behind the arc? Hello, Steph Curry. Well, yeah. now when you are hiring, you can play at that level because four out of five employees who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. No matter the industry, healthcare to manufacturing to business services, ZipRecruiter makes hiring faster and easier. And today you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash shame. ZipRecruiter doesn't wait for the right candidates to find you. ZipRecruiter's AI scouts talents for you. First, when you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent out to over 100 top job sites. Then ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right skills and experience, and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates very fast. And now to try ZipRecruiter for free, our listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com slash shame. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-H-A-M-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash shame. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hall of Shame is brought to you by Theragun. I can't have used it more. Like (laughs) the best thing I've received in this quarantine. I now am in a Zoom room all day. Humble brag. And whether I'm sitting or now I'm trying a standing desk because, you know, you do Mm -hmm. what you need to do. I just, it's so good. Like sometimes I'm just like doing it while I'm pitching in the Zoom writer's room. And it's beautiful because it's so quiet. You can totally get away with that. It doesn't bother anyone. I mean, the visual of me maybe throws some people, but... Everyone thinks you're weird. Everyone thinks you're strange. But it's but fine because you feel great. I don't think it's this Theragun is why everyone thinks I'm weird. You mm. know, it's like more like a personality True. thing for me, so... I didn't want to say that, but... <laughs> well, look, the stress of daily life weighs on us all. Whether you're an elite athlete or just a regular person trying to get through the day in your Zoom room, muscle pain and muscle tension is a real thing. That's why I use Theragun the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. And now, as quiet as an electric toothbrush. I mean, so quiet. Mm -hmm. That's all because the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that's so quiet, you will wonder if it is on while you soothe your aching muscles while pitching a joke in your Zoom room (laughs) with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. Try Theragun risk-free for 30 days. There is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. With an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need. Starting at only $199, go to theragun.com shame right now to get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com shame, theragun.com shame. Every day, our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So we're back. Quick refresh. We're in the year 1919, and there's a classic World Series matchup between the veteran Chicago White Sox and the young upstart Cincinnati Reds. A faction of players on the White Sox have decided to throw the World Series to make some cash because they're not paid enough, which is legit, and the Mm -hmm. team's owner is a stingy asshole. Also legit. And all their uniforms smell like shit. (laughs) Correct. 
There are probably better ways to go about rectifying all of that, but that is the kind of shit you force people into during a time of prohibition and deep inequity. More on that later. (laughs) Tease. So hilariously, like I said, the rumors of the fix were pretty widespread. So much so that approaching the series, there was this drastic increase in people betting on the Reds, and the odds against them began to plummet. Wow. So did did it like <laughs> spill out of the gambling circle and now just like Joanne next door was Joanne, like, did you hear like, what's going on? Joanne sports betting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think in general, lots of people were in the dark about it and the fans yeah. just were on, you know, thinking everything was on the up and up. But yes, anyone who was like remotely like someone who gambled on sports was like, I kind of know what's up. Amazing. Here's how the World Series went down. Game one. October 1st, 1919. It's a sunny and warm day. Baseball weather. The game is a sellout with scalpers getting the unheard price of $50 a ticket, which at that time, big ass deal. The bookies send word that Eddie Seacott is either to walk or hit the first Reds batter to give confirmation that the fix is on. So on the game's second pitch, Seacott throws a wild pitch that hits Maurice Rath in the back, this Reds player. So it's like confirmation. It's the on, fix baby. is on. Karen's whispering to everybody in the crowd, yeah. guys, it's on, oh it's on, god, it's on. Oh my god, I told you. In the fourth inning of game one, the game is tied one to one with one out and a red on first. The next Reds batter hits what should be a pretty routine double play to Seacott. But he throws uncharacteristically high to second base, keeping the inning alive. This guy it would be super fun to go back and – I mean, obviously, there's no way we could watch this. But just to watch how yeah. terrible these actor baseball players are would be so fun. Or great. We don't know yet. Or absolutely – yeah. They totally sold it. The Reds end up scoring off the next couple of hitters. So it, like, definitely made a difference in the game. It ends with the Reds winning 9-2-1. Oh, wow. <laughs> it would be so fun. The New York Times wrote, quote, never before in the history of America's biggest baseball spectacle, the World Series, Mm -hmm. has a pennant winning club received such a disastrous drubbing in an opening game. Yeah, I mean, like, if Russia has told us anything, you got to kind of like stay in the game if you want to cheat. (laughs) Be chill. Seacott's like, oh, I have a football. (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) Anyway. Wearing skates out there. So Charles Comiskey was like, my team is good. Nine to one is insane. And he asked manager Kid Gleason whether he thought the team was throwing the series. And Gleason was like, something's off. In game two, Lefty Williams, a pitcher who was literally known for his control, that was his thing, walks three Cincinnati batters, all of whom score, leading to a final score of four to two Cincinnati. Yeah, like you can't be that obvious. You gotta throw like one that's rough, one that's good, switch it up. White Sox catcher Ray Schalk, who was in faction one, so not part of these shadies, was livid after the game. He said, quote, that son of a bitch Williams kept crossing me. In that lousy fourth inning, he crossed me three times. He wouldn't throw a curve, meaning Schalk, the catcher, was sending signals and Lefty, the pitcher, was ignoring them, which is not normal practice. Okay, if I were him and I was on the the right side of things, I'd be like, I'm not going down with all y'all. You guys are going to make me look like assholes. Were they even getting a cut of the money? I don't know that the first fact, I don't think they knew about it. Oh. Remember, the ones involved were in that second faction of players. The ones okay, with Karen the, knows. The ones so. with the cool nicknames were involved. Got it. The boring ones were not, because that's how it goes. But even so, 
You know, if you're a catcher and your pitcher has listened to every single thing that you have said since you have been with him, and then yeah. all of a sudden he's you're not. You're suspicious. Super. So game three, Burns and Mayharg, who are the second set of gamblers that approach the players on Gandal's word, bet a bundle on the Reds to win game three, but the Sox end up winning three to zero with Gandal, in fact, being the one to drive in two of the team's runs. Yikes. Turns out Gandal and the rest of the players in on the fix were angry at so far receiving only a fraction of their promised money. And so maybe they were like, we're going to win. <gasps> a little bit of a rebellion Ooh. here. Or maybe they're fine, like, we can't be so fucking obvious. <laughs> or they're like, we need, to, we need to sell this a little bit better. <sighs> so in game four, Gandal tells Sullivan that he needs $20,000 before the game or the fix is off. Oh. And Sullivan makes the deadline, but barely. So the Reds do win that game. Eddie Seacott makes two key fielding errors. This guy, our key actor. Wow. <laughs> After that game, game four, Shoeless Joe Jackson and Williams each receive $5,000 payoffs. Game five. In the sixth inning, Happy Felsch misplays a routine fly ball, then throws poorly to Reesberg at second, who allows the ball to get away from him. Before the inning is over, Felsch misplays a second ball, allowing three runs to score. Wow. I'm just like, I know. In my head as you say this. I'm dying to watch. Okay. But then after that game, the second set of gamblers fail to produce the promised additional 20 grand. So the White Sox players decide they've had enough. And then they go on to win game six and seven, <gasps> meaning the Reds are now up four games to three. Wow, but close. Very close. Still two more games to go. Tense, right. Because remember, this is like the endless <laughs> nine-game series. It's anybody's game. So game eight. Before game eight, the gamblers are like, uh-uh. So threats are made to the players. Yeah, no shit. By both sets of gamblers that they better fucking throw it. If movies have taught me anything, there's like broken bones on the line. Yeah, correct. So yeah, these are not like you're in big trouble, Mr. Threats. They're like mob level scary threats. <laughs> Gonna cut your toe off. Bitch. Yeah. Both Seacott and Shoeless Joe Jackson later described their fears of being shot and threats <gasps> were even made against the players' wives. Oh, that's so scary. Yeah. You know what? That's how it was. Wow. We know. We've seen movies. <laughs> I've watched The Sopranos. I don't think I learned my lesson not to get all of my historical information from fictional movies, but here we are. Mm, no, I don't. It doesn't sound like it. So with the threats in the air, Williams, the pitcher again renowned for his control, literally makes it through only 15 pitches, allowing four hits and three runs before being taken out of the game with only one out. Four hits and three runs on 15 pitches is bad. Wow. <laughs> this guy's scared. <laughs> terrified. So Cincinnati goes on to win the game in the series. So big picture, the White Sox did what they said they were going to do, which is fix the series to lose. Right. But in the end, the players involved only collected a total of between them of $20,000. $10,000 from the original Gambler Sullivan and $10,000 from the other Motley crew. That is a far cry from the original eighty and hundred thousand dollar proposals. Don't get involved in the mob. What are you guys doing? Have you not watched movies? <laughs> it's like nineteen nineteen. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not. As you can imagine, the aftermath was chaotic, and no one could agree to one story. It's just sort of depended on what you wanted to believe. So, if you thought there had been a fix, there was plenty of circumstance to corroborate that. But if you were like, say, the Reds general manager, who would obviously want to believe they won fair and square, 
you would choose not to believe. He (laughs) said, quote, they must be consummate actors for nothing in their playing gave me the impression they weren't doing their best. If that'll help you sleep at night. sure. Sure, man. The umpire was also surprised saying, well, I guess I'm just a big dope. So just well, kind of depended on what you needed to be true. If the shoe fits. Yeah. Wear it. Comiskey, our cheap-ass owner, publicly yeah. denied the fix, but did offer a $20,000 reward to anyone with information that would prove otherwise. Oh, so now he's going to pay. Oh, yeah, exactly. Not pinching those pennies now, are we? Oh, wow. <laughs> he also hired a literally a private detective. So, okay, so he's paying even more money. Good yeah. to know. Good to know. Yeah. Their uniforms were still dirty, but, you know. He's paying that detective. That detective has a clean suit. Uh, (laughs) So the players and gamblers involved weren't officially outed until well into the next season. In September 1920, almost a year later, a grand jury was assembled to investigate. Most of the players involved ended up confessing at least to a piece of their roles, including starting pitcher Seacott who testified through tears. I don't know why I did it. I have a wife and kids. I needed the money. I lost everything, job, reputation, everything. My friends all bet on the socks. I knew, but I couldn't tell them. Oof. (gasps) Tough. Yikes. That's tough. The jury ended up handing down indictments to all eight players and gamblers implicated. They were charged with nine counts of conspiracy to defraud. The trial began on June 27th, 1921. So like, the next year in Chicago, mm-hmm. and immediately all the fingers were pointed at all the people. Like, wherever there was a bus, someone was like, I'm going to throw people under it. <laughs> oh, wow. It was nuts. Sleepy Bill Burns turned state witness and testified Sleepy. that the White Sox were in on it from the beginning to fix a series. He described his initial meeting with Chick Gandal and recalled when the pitcher, Seacott, told them he would plainly throw the ball literally out of the park if he needed to throw the game. Wow. As I said above, Seacott confessed... Shoeless Joe Jackson's role in the conspiracy remained controversial. He maintained his innocence throughout the trial and said he made no intentional errors, but then he also said he could have, quote, tried harder. Joe, what does that mean, my Uh, friend? It's the World Series. It's just the World Series. Long story short, there was a lot of evidence, both financially and through verbal testimony, that the fix happened. However... After a month of that, the jury, in only three hours of deliberation, found the defendants not guilty of conspiracy to defraud. The courtroom went bananas. According to the judge, the state had failed to show how the defendants defrauded the public in the scheme, which was like the burden of proof or whatever. So they're all free to go? So... At this moment, yes, the popular version of events right after the scandal was that the innocent players were corrupted by a snake of a, quote, foreign origin. Oh, my God, always. It can never just be that these white dudes simply acted poorly on their own. Yeah, can't. In 1921, the Dearborn Independent ran an article headlined, quote, Jewish gamblers corrupt American baseball, which claimed... All along the line of investigation, the names of Jews were plentifully sprinkled. Jesus. Jesus. Like nuts, and yet the rhetoric feels way too similar to today. I mean, why is it? Listen, Russia and I are just a couple of sports fans that want to go back in time and just shoot the shit. And it always ends up being like white people being fucking racist or sexist (laughs) or just being dumb. Look, the history of America... Despite what Fox News might tell you, is racist. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so 
You might think they got off scot-free, but unfortunately for the players, the day after the trial, the new baseball commissioner, Judge Landis, had different ideas. He had a goal to clean up professional baseball, and so he banned all of them. Oh. He said, quote, regardless of the verdict of juries, no player that throws a ball game, no player that entertains proposals or promises to throw a game, no player that sits in a conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing games are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it will ever again play professional baseball. And no owner that will pay money for his players' uniforms <laughs> to be washed are not welcome here. <laughs> Is what he should have tacked on. Buck Weaver, who also maintains he knew about the fix but never participated and said always claimed he was innocent, applied six times for reinstatement to baseball beginning in 1922, and Ugh. he never was reinstated. None of the players were. Wow. So the consequences were huge for these guys, and like ultimately it was for $20,000 split amongst eight of them. Even in 1919, that's not a lot of money. Damn. I feel like if I was caught up in something like that, I don't have, like, the spine to keep the lie. Like, I think I would have been the one to blow the whole thing up and just, like, I couldn't sleep at night. I think we've both established that you and I would never even do it. That we're a little wussy. You would be like, I'm cheating! Like, you would be on the mound and you would just be like, I'm cheating! Don't do it anymore! I'm sorry! I said sorry, Karen. I'm sorry. Hey, Karen, forgive me. Little slight happy ending to this. Shoeless Joe Jackson said he was actually fine leaving the league. In his own account to Sport Magazine in 1949, he said, quote, I have been pretty lucky since I left the big leagues. No man who has done the things they accuse me of doing could have been as successful, presumably as he'd been. Everything I touch seemed to turn to money, and I've made my share down through the years, I've been blessed with a good banker too. My wife. Oh. Cute. That's cute. Wow. This guy, just a likable dude, except for maybe that he helped throw an entire World Series, which sucks <laughs> a little bit. Listen, he made a, he was the only one that made made out pretty well here. <laughs> hey. A restaurant? Chain? Worked out for him. He's in Toronto. Do do I understand how anything works? Do I understand how time works? Okay, so the main mob boss who never really interacted with the players but directly funded kind of all the different gamblers involved in this, and he was never legally implicated in the Sox affair, and he ended up remaining the nation's richest gambler. So the oh. players got screwed, but the gamblers were fine. Um, I will say in 1928, however, a gambler who claimed Rothstein owed him $300,000 shot and killed him in New York. Shot and killed Rothstein? The big head mob boss guy. Wow. So this is obviously a baseball story first and foremost, but I ended it on The Gambler because here's my thing as I was like reading about all of this. To circle back to the top of the story, this is what prohibition era America was. More lawless and crooked in part because it was so deeply oppressive because it instituted systems that forced people to have to cheat to get any semblance of equity or even just a decent standard of living. Law and order in deeply sarcastic quotes, is another way to think about it. Damn. All that rhetorical nonsense that they were talking about then in Prohibition, that we're kind of hearing a version of now, mm -hmm. all it does is create more and shittier versions of what it's claiming to get rid of. Because you know, and we all know, that's not really what it's about. No. So, look, I just had to go on that diatribe for one hot minute. It was well said. But to wrap it up, I'm big on fair play and the purity of sport. I think you are too. But also, 
I'm kind of with these players. They may have gone about it the wrong way, but it also makes sense. They deserved way more respect and pay than they were being given. It kind of reminds me a little of college athletes and the fact that they should be getting paid. I don't even know if they went about it the wrong way. What other choice did they have? Correct, because when you have a society like that, that is like prohibiting everything, you don't have choices. You're forced into making these crappy decisions, which happens a lot even in 2020. Literally to survive. And the rich white guys made off of the money and everyone else just had to sit around and be like, well, fuck me. What else am I going to, what am I going to do for a career now? hundred years later, we're talking about the same shit. Yep. So anyway, my girl, that is the crazy story of the 1919 Black Sox World Series. I need to go in the corner and sit and think about this for a hot minute. (laughs) It's a ride. As ever, very complicated. What a bonkers story. Not what I was expecting. (laughs) Because I've heard this story before, but you telling it in your way, I'm totally on the player's side. It's weird. Great story. That was fun. That was fun. Thanks for listening. Of course. We're going to be back next week with a crazy story again on Hall of Shame. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Hall of Shame is a product of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Allison Falzetta. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and Stephen Hoffman. Engineering and sound design by Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis. Our theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa. Thank you to Sydney Rapp and Brian Semmel for production support every week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.